Chapter 4, Part 4 of Brown Book of the Hitler Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Brown Book of the Hitler Terror by Lord Marley. Chapter 4, The Real Incendiaries, Part 4. Where are the instigators of the fire? In the second March number of the conservative weekly journal Der Ring, which is edited by Heinrich von Gleichen, we find the fire in the Reichstag led to extremely severe countermeasures by the government of the Reich. The authorities are maintaining a state of preparedness for all eventualities. The public and the leading articles in the press are asking, how is it possible? Are we then really a nation of blind hens? Where are the instigators of this fire, whose results show how sure they were of their aims? To give a single answer to all questions, we must say in all seriousness and to the point, we have no secret service, such as the English and other nations have. If we had such an institution, then we should by now know exactly where the instigators of the Reichstag fire were to be found. In fact, we should already know the actual persons. They are perhaps members of the best German international society. Heinrich von Gleichen is one of the most influential members of the Heron Club. Since Poppen was Chancellor, von Gleichen has been one of the wire-pullers of the government's policy. His connections with the President's Palace are more than excellent. In the extract quoted by us from The Ring, Von Gleichen openly charges the Hitler government with not having done anything to clear up the Reichstag fire. He asks, where are the instigators of this fire, whose results show how sure they were of their aims? Can anything else be meant by this than that the National Socialists organized the fire in order confidently to win one position of power after the other? After this issue, the ring was prohibited. Dr. Bell tells tales out of school. Elsewhere in this book, an exact account is given of Dr. Bell's death at the hands of the Nazis. Here we deal only with his role in connection with the Reichstag fire. We do not propose to rely on the reports which state that before the Reichstag fire, between 8 and 9 on February 27th, Dr. Bell told English and American journalists that the Reichstag was on fire. This statement was deliberately circulated by the Hitler government. The Nazis wanted a favorable opportunity for a dementi, and for thus discrediting what Dr. Bell had really stated. Dr. Bell knew van der Lubbe very well and he was also kept closely informed by van der Lubbe of the connections he had formed with Nazi circles in Munich and Berlin. Although for about a year Dr. Bell had been hostile to the National Socialist Party, he still had a number of men within the party who kept him informed. He knew exactly what had taken place in connection with the Reichstag fire. In the National Club, in the Friedrich Ebertstrasse, on March 3rd or 4th, Bell betrayed what he knew about the Reichstag fire to a politician belonging to the People's Party. This politician wrote to some of his friends, 
telling them the information which Bell had given him as to who were the real incendiaries. One of these letters fell into the hands of Dalouagus, the chief of the secret police. The letter cost Bell his life. On April 3rd, he was murdered in the village of Kufstein in Austria by Nazis who went there from Munich. The Murder of Hanussen The clairvoyant Eric Hanussen gave a housewarming party on the day before the Reichstag fire at his new flat in Berlin, Leitzenbergstrasse 16, which he called the Palace of Occultism. Some of the Nazi leaders were present on this occasion, including Count Heldorf, leader of the Berlin Nazis, as well as artists, actors, and journalists. Among them, there was also a reporter of the Berliner Zwolf or Blatt. In the seance which Hanussen staged, he said, among other things, I see a great house burning. In the first March number of his weekly paper, Hanussen's Bunte Wochenschau, Hanussen printed an article on the political situation. He wrote in this article that he had known in advance of the Reichstag fire, but that he was not able to speak openly of it. It is clear that some leading Nazi must have given Hanussen information before the Reichstag fire, which enabled Hanussen to foresee it. Hanussen must have known a great deal. This is clear from a sworn deposition given us by Dr. Franz Hollering, former editor of the Berliner Zwolf or Blatt. The undersigned Dr. Franz Hollering hereby declares on oath, in my capacity as editor-in-chief of the Berliner Zwolf or Blatt and of the Montag Morgan, I was brought into touch between February 1st and March 4th, 1933, with Eric Hanussen, as the publisher of his National Socialist Clairvoyant Journal which was set up and printed in the same printing works as the papers named above. I did not get to know Hanussen personally, but I had a telephone conversation with him on one occasion when he was trying to get in touch with the business manager of the printing works and the editor, Roly Nuremberg, who were not there at the time. That was in the night of February 27th, the night of the burning of the Reichstag. The first report of the discovery of the fire had hardly reached the office when Hanussen rang up on the telephone. He wanted to know from me how far the fire had spread and whether the incendiaries had been caught. I replied that an unconfirmed report had reached me about a communist troop which was alleged to have set fire to the Reichstag with the help of torches. At the same time, I pointed out that this report was incredible. I said in so many words that the communists, particularly in the existing political situation, would never have committed such a suicidal act of folly. Hanussen replied in an excited voice that he was of quite the opposite opinion, that he knew it was a communist plot, and that I would very soon see the consequences. This call came through between 9.30 and 9.45. I made inquiries of my staff, which knew of Hanussen's close connections with Count Heldorf, particularly through his frequent telephone calls to the printing works. Hanussen was generally regarded as exceptionally well-informed on National Socialist plans. Signed, Dr. Franz Hollering. Thus, at a time when the first vague reports of the fire in the Reichstag had only just reached the editorial offices, of the newspapers, 
Hanussen was already saying that the fire had been started by the communists and that it would have serious consequences. This statement of Hanussen's shows more clearly than anything else that his informant is to be found in high Nazi circles. The Jew, Hanussen, did not long enjoy the rule of Hitler, which he had so earnestly desired. On April 7, 1933, his body was found in a little wood by the side of the Barut Neuhof Road. He had died at the hands of the Nazis. The third man who knew the secret. After Bell, Hanussen. After Hanussen, Dr. Oberforen. Of these three persons who knew the secret of the burning of the Reichstag, Dr. Oberforum was the most dangerous. Bell could be got rid of as a political adventurer, Hanussen as a charlatan. Dr. Oberforen was an influential politician, leader of the German nationalist fraction in the Reichstag. In February 1933, he had declared in an election speech, that the Hitler government would continue to exist in its then composition, whatever the results of the election. Events after February 27th shook his belief that the National Socialists would stand by the undertaking sworn by Hitler on January 30th. Dr. Oberforn put forward within the German Nationalist Party the proposal that it should begin the fight against Hitler's policy of concentrating power in his own hands. In order to win his friends for this fight, he recorded what he knew of the Reichstag fire and of the struggle within the cabinet in the memorandum which has already been quoted. The following description by Dr. Oberforum deals with what happened after the Reichstag fire. The German nationalists and the fire. However much the German nationalist party is in agreement with the sharpest measures against the communists, it cannot approve of the act of incendiarism carried out by its coalition friends. It is true that the cabinet meeting on Tuesday agreed to the sharpest measures against the communists and partly also against the social democrats. However, no doubt was left that the act of incendiarism would most seriously damage the reputation of the National Front abroad. In this meeting of the cabinet, the sharpest expressions of condemnation were not spared. The National Socialist ministers did not succeed in pressing through the prohibition of the Communist Party. As already said above, the German nationalists needed the Communist deputies in order to prevent the National Socialists from having an absolute majority in Parliament. At this cabinet meeting, Herr Goering was strictly forbidden to produce in public his forged material from Karl Liebknecht House. It was pointed out that the publication of these crude forgeries would only make things still worse for the government. It was particularly inconvenient for the government that the communist deputy Torgler, leader of the communist fraction in the Reichstag, had put himself at the disposal of the police on Tuesday morning. His flight would have been preferable. The fact that after thousands of communist functionaries had been arrested, and in spite of the threat of a court-martial, he had presented himself to the police, was extremely inconvenient for the government. Herr Goering was commissioned to deny that Torgler had given himself up voluntarily. The echo in the world press, however, which followed the Reichstag fire, was so unexpectedly unanimous 
in attributing the act of incendiarism to leading members of the government that the prestige of the national government was most seriously shaken. However convenient it was for Goering and Goebbels that the communist and social democratic election propaganda had been silenced, however well they knew that the broad mass of lower middle class persons clerks and peasants would believe the story of the reichstag fire and would consequently give their votes to the national socialist party as the leader of the fight against bolshevism they were seriously disturbed at the attitude of the german nationalist ministers in the cabinet once again they did not get the prohibition of the communist party in spite of their boundless pretensions, they felt that they were held in an iron embrace by the German nationalists, Stahlheim and the Reichswehr. It was clear to them that they must get out of this embrace as soon as possible. They discussed all kinds of proposals. Finally, the groups decided to make a bid for power by a coup in the night of March 5th to 6th. The plan was to occupy the government quarter and demand from Hindenburg a change in the composition of the cabinet. In this event, Hindenburg was to appoint Adolf Hitler to take over the functions of President of the Reich, and at the same time Hitler was to appoint Goering Chancellor. The discussions led up to the decision to carry through the plan in connection with the great propaganda march of Nazi stormtroops and protective corps through Berlin, at which Hitler would take the salute on Friday, March 3rd. This great propaganda march was then organized, Numbers of provincial stormtroop sections arrived in Berlin, the streets were cleared by the police for the triumphal march, traffic was diverted, and thousands of people crowded to the Wilhelmstrasse to see the march past the leader Adolf Hitler. As rumors had been gaining ground that the government quarter was to be occupied in the course of this march, at the last moment the German nationalist ministers in the cabinet insisted that Adolf Hitler should abandon the march past in the Wilhelmstrasse. The thousands waiting at the Wilhelmstrasse were suddenly told, to their astonishment, that the Nazi march would follow another route, and would not touch the Wilhelmstrasse, but would go through Prince Albrechtstrasse and to the west of the town. However, the German nationalists were obliged to agree, for their part, to abandon a Stahlhelm march through the government quarter, which had been announced for the day of the elections as an act of homage to Hindenburg. Stahlhelm leaders agreed to the change. The position was extremely serious for the German nationalist ministers. The election results in Lipa Detmold had shown how great the danger was that German national electors would pass over the national socialists in a body. German nationalist propaganda could not compete with the unrestrained propaganda carried on by the national socialists. The Herring Club the groups connected with the Stahlhelm and the German nationalist leaders discussed the position. After the occupation of the government quarter on March 3rd had been averted, it was necessary to prepare for the threatened coup on the night of March 5th through 6th with more than the Reichswehr and the Stahlhelm. It was clear that the masses were now no longer behind the old field marshal, but behind their idol, Adolf Hitler. It would be futile to oppose these masses and the sentiment of the masses merely by the use of arms. It was therefore necessary to act as unscrupulously as Goering and Goebbels had done in connection with the Reichstag fire. The following plan was made. 
an official statement was to be made public dealing with the results so far arrived at in the inquiry in connection with the Reichstag incendiaries. This statement was so worded that, if necessary, it would be possible to refer to it to show that they were already then on the tracks of the National Socialist criminals. This official statement could then be used for the press on the night of March 5th through 6th as weapon against the National Socialist ministers, if these really attempted to carry out their plan of occupying the government quarter. It was hoped by these means to throw the National Socialist masses into confusion and, if possible, to win them for the National Front under the leadership of the German Nationalists and for Hindenburg, to disclose the plans for the forcible seizure of power, to accuse Goering, Hitler, and Goebbels of the act of incendiarism in the Reichstag, on the basis of the official communique already issued, and to call on the millions of National Socialists to stand united behind Field Marshal Hindenburg to save the National Front against Marxism. It was hoped by these means to make the national masses prepared to accept a military dictatorship under Hindenburg. Hindenburg himself was not to be present at the Stahlhelm demonstration, but was to spend the night of March 5th to the 6th outside of Berlin under the protection of the Reichswehr, and the Reichswehr itself was to be mobilized for action. Murderer and Incendiary Dr. Oberforn wrote in his memorandum, In the meantime, the men charged by Herr Gehring under the leadership of Highness Silesian stormtroop leader and Reichstag deputy passed along the heating passages from the palace of the president of the Reichstag and through the underground passage into the Reichstag. The point at which each of the selected stormtroop and protective corps leader was to start a fire was arranged in detail. A general rehearsal had been held the previous day. Van der Lubbe went with them as the fifth or sixth man. When the observation posts in the Reichstag sent word that the air was clear, the incendiary set to work. The starting of the fire was completed within a few minutes. Then their work accomplished, they made their way back by the same route as they had come. Van der Lubbe alone remained behind in the Reichstag building. Dr. Oberforen's statement that Heines was in charge of the incendiary column is confirmed from other sources including Dr. Bell. Heinus was especially suitable for this work. He murders when he is told to, he shoots when he is told to, and he sets fire when he is told to. The incendiary's base. Even if Goering's tools had prepared the act of provocation more carefully and had not made the whole series of contradictions, which in themselves are overwhelming evidence of the Nazis' guilt, the case against the Nazis would still be clear to all eyes to see. The Vossische Zeitung of March 1st, 1933, contains the following statement emanating from government sources. It is stated that there is irrefutable evidence that Deputy Togler, chairman of the communist faction of the Reichstag, was in the Reichstag building for several hours with the incendiary and that he had also been in company with other persons who participated in the incendiary act. It is added that the other criminals may have been able to escape through the underground passage used in connection with the heating equipment of the Reichstag, which connects the Reichstag building itself with the building of the president of the Reichstag. 
As we have already said, there is in fact an underground passage leading from the Reichstag building to the house of the president of the Reichstag. At the time of the Reichstag fire, the occupant of this house, to which the underground passage leads, was Hermann Goering. He occupies the house through which, according to his own version, the criminals escaped. Hermann Goering is not only prime minister of Prussia, minister of police, and president of the Reichstag, Hermann Goering is also one of the chiefs of the stormtroop organization. Hermann Goering has at his disposal a special storm detachment, Storm Detachment G. His house is constantly guarded by a staff guard consisting of at least 30 men. The official Preussische Presidienst announced that at least seven men must have been concerned in bringing the incendiary material into the Reichstag, and the actual operation of starting the fire must have taken ten men. If we accept this statement, at least ten men must have been concerned in the fire. It can be safely assumed that the fire was started at a number of different points in different parts of the building. Otherwise, it would be impossible to explain the rapidity with which the fire spread in the huge building. To start the fire at several points required a considerable quantity of inflammable material weighing several hundredweight. In his report to fire brigade inspectors and men, Director Gemp stated that after the fire, he observed a considerable quantity of incendiary material which had not been used and that a lorry would have been required to carry it. The statement by Director Gemp confirms the assumption that the incendiaries must have taken a large quantity of incendiary material into the Reichstag. How was the incendiary material taken into the Reichstag? We have given a description of the obstacles a visitor has to overcome in order to get into the Reichstag. Visitors are only admitted through door five. They have to pass through a series of officials. Can it be imagined that between seven and ten men carrying several hundredweight of incendiary material can have slipped into the Reichstag without being noticed by a single one of the Reichstag officials? Even the most prejudiced observer must admit that no incendiary and no group of incendiaries could have dared to bring in the material through door five. The case is just the same with the so-called deputies' entrance, door two. Only deputies are allowed to enter by this door. The idea that deputies could have brought hundredweights of incendiary material past the officials at door two is no less absurd than the idea that the material could have been brought in by door five. The incendiaries would therefore have been obliged to choose some other way a secret way, which would allow them to bring the material into the Reichstag and distribute it at the points required. There is such a secret way into the Reichstag, namely the underground passage, which connects the house of the president of the Reichstag with the Reichstag building itself. This underground passage was the strategic route for the incendiaries. But anyone who wants to use the underground passage to the Reichstag was obliged first to pass through Goering's house, the house of the president of the Reichstag. 
He was therefore obliged to get past the guards who were constantly watching Goering's house. He would also had to have run the risk of being seen by someone in Goering's house. Is it conceivable that communists could have got into Goering's house and through it and through the underground passage without being stopped and arrested by the guard of 30 men? Is it conceivable that communists could have taken hundredweights of incendiary material through Goering's house without having been stopped and arrested by the guard? Is it conceivable that communists could have escaped through Goering's house? It is out of the question. Any communist who in those days of February had tried to enter Goering's house would without a doubt have been arrested. It was impossible for communists to reach the Reichstag by way of Goering's house and the underground passage. But for whom, then, was it possible? Only leading National Socialists could have entered Goering's house without attracting attention and without arousing even the slightest suspicion. Many meetings took place in the house between Goering and the leading officials of the National Socialist Party. No stormtroop man would have thought of stopping men who held high positions in his party and whom he often saw visiting Goering's house. There was no danger for such people. They could go in and out as they liked. This is true of all the higher officials. They could have brought the incendiary material required in small quantities without any difficulty and without attracting any attention. The guards would not have noticed anything if a number of chests described as documents or even as arms had been delivered to the basement of the house. The transport of arms was taking place in those days wherever there was a Nazi headquarters. Goering's house was the key position for the attack on the Reichstag. Whoever controlled Goering's house could do what he liked to the Reichstag building. Goering's house was the bridgehead from which the incendiary column advanced to the assault. Goering's house was the depot where the incendiary material was stored. Goering's house was the safe port into which the criminals could flee when they had perpetrated their crime. The Incendiary Column We said above that only leading National Socialists could have entered Goering's house without arousing suspicion. Dr. Oberforen also speaks of selected leaders of the storm troops and protective corps. It is clear that the National Socialist leadership, which devised and organized the plan of the Reichstag fire, were very much interested in seeing that the carrying out of the plan was entrusted to their most reliable praetorians. Goebbels and Goering could not put themselves into the hands of any stormtroop members. They could not run the risk that some discontented stormtroop men might expose the real incendiaries. Therefore, they had to seek their accomplices in the ranks of the highest officials of the party. Men had to be found who, on the one hand, would not shrink from any crime, and on the other, were so closely linked to the National Socialist leadership and with their fate that they could not be suspected of any treachery. And the ranks of the leaders of the National Socialist Party leadership are full of persons who satisfy these conditions. We know from Dr. Oberford's memorandum 
that the murderer Heines was put in charge of the incendiary column. How was the incendiary act carried out? The incendiary column assembled in Goering's house. Heines, Schultz, Heldorf, and the others could get past the guards without interference, as they were known as stormtroop leaders. Vanderlube probably went in with Count Heldorf. The first task which had to be carried out was the transport of the incendiary material, for which purpose the incendiaries used the underground passage to the Reichstag from Goering's house. It is probable that several journeys had to be made. They began their operations at an agreed signal, which told them that the last deputy had left the Reichstag. There was no danger of discovery by the Reichstag officials on duty, for these had been sent home by the Nazi inspector before the end of their spell of duty. The distribution of the incendiary material at the various points, and pouring petrol, benzene, etc. over it, must have taken some little time, at least twenty minutes. Then the fire was started at different points. The first reports issued by the police and the fire brigade spoke of seven to ten incendiaries and of the fire having started at many points. No one in Germany believed that the incendiaries had got into the Reichstag in the usual way and had left by the usual way. The question was raised, how did the incendiaries escape? Any careless talk by a policeman any careless talk from the fire brigade, any newspaper report, might create an alarming position. Goering was in an extremely difficult situation. He resorted to an old trick. Before anyone else suggested that the incendiaries must have escaped through the underground passage, Goering wanted to say it himself. He hoped thereby to meet the imminent danger, to present something that was highly suspicious is quite harmless. Goering himself stated that the incendiaries had escaped through the underground passage. But later he bitterly regretted that he had said this. The trick had not come off. And so this underground passage to Goering's house was never again mentioned in any minister's speech or in any official report. Goering's statement was to be forgotten. We have not forgotten it. It is a fact that the incendiaries escaped through the underground passage, but they could only use this passage because they knew it led to Goering's house. Goering's house meant safety. The official Preussische Presidienst of February 28th stated that the incendiaries had full knowledge of the building. Who other than Goering's friends were in the best position to gain full knowledge, to examine and test the underground passage? Goering was master in the Reichstag. He could give his friends information about every corner of it. He was master in the palace of the president, of the Reichstag. He could receive his friends there. He could arrange a store and hiding place for the incendiary material. He was Prussian Minister of the Interior. He controlled the police throughout Prussia. All the possibilities of organizing the burning of the Reichstag were in the hands of Goering. Van der Lube 
in the burning Reichstag. The Preussische Presidienst tried to persuade the public that van der Lubbe had been unable to escape because he did not know the building. According to Goering and the Preussische Pressedienst, all of van der Lubbe's accomplices were quite familiar with the building. It would have been easy for them to take van der Lubbe with them and to save him. But van der Lubbe could not be saved. He had to be left behind in the burning Reichstag, and was left behind because he was the evidence against the communists. Van der Lubbe played his part to the best of his ability. He let himself be arrested in the burning building. He had discarded his shirt and coat so as to present a true picture of a communist incendiary. He confessed to having set fire to the Reichstag. He confessed to any act of incendiarism required in the welfare office in Nulkholm, in the Berlin town hall, in the Berliner Schloss. And van der Luber will confess to everything which his employers ask him to confess. He will say against Torgler whatever his employers tell him to say. He will say against Dimitrov everything that is wanted. He will inculpate everyone whom his National Socialist friends wish to destroy. He will exculpate everyone whom his National Socialist friends wished to protect. Hermann Goering But all of van der Lubbe's confessions could not prevent the failure of the second task, which had been entrusted to him, by giving himself up and confessing to shelter the real incendiaries. The figure of van der Lubbe was too small for this. His role was too obvious. Everyone saw through the trick. They realized that behind van der Lubbe was Captain Hermann Göring, one of the stormtroop chiefs, minister of the German Reich, premier and minister of the interior of Prussia, president of the German Reichstag. Captain Göring was born in Rosenheim, Bavaria, on January 12, 1893. His biographers tell us of his heroic deeds as an airman during the war. They forgot to add that his flights were carried out when he was under the influence of morphia. Goering's biographers tell us that in 1925 through 26 he was in Stockholm working for an airplane company. They forgot to add that Hermann Goering, according to the official reports of the Stockholm police, was put into the asylum at Langbro because a doctor had certified him to be of unsound mind. He was subsequently taken to the Konradsberg Hospital near Stockholm, but as a result of his conduct he was taken back to Langbro and there kept shut up. He could no longer be kept in private mental homes because the staff were unwilling to look after him. And in Langbro he had such bad attacks that he had to be put into the section for serious cases. All the attempts made by Goering to deny these facts are vain, as we have a photograph of the official registration card recording Goering's admission to the Langbro Asylum. Goering's biographers like to record his marriage with Karen von Falk. She had previously been married to a Swede, Captain Kansau. After the divorce, the former couple 
had a lawsuit over the guardianship of their son Thomas. During the court proceedings on April 22, 1926, a certificate signed by the police doctor Carl A. Lundberg was submitted. We print a photograph of this certificate, which says in so many words that Goering is seriously addicted to drugs. Goering's morphia craving has therefore been established before the courts. The court decided that Goering could not have the guardianship of the boy Thomas. National Socialism has given Goering the guardianship of 60 million Germans. On March 10, 1933, Goering made a speech in Essen, in the course of which he said, quote, My nerves have never given way up to now. Unquote. He hoped by this remark to silence the statements published in the foreign press regarding his nervous condition. At that time, he did not realize that there was in existence documentary proof of his nervous condition, his insanity, his craving for morphia. It is no accident that this man is playing a leading part in the Third Empire. He embodies the whole brutality of the old Prussian officers' corps, which has been striving for power ever since 1918. He is the embodiment of the sadism which in the last few months has led to thousands of murders and tens of thousands of brutal and cruel acts of maltreatment. He is the embodiment of that officer's clique which murdered Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, which shed streams of blood in Hungary, which set up white gallows in Finland, and is now making the whole of Hitler's Germany into a brown hell. Goering represents the content of the policy of the National Socialists. National Socialism does not represent the workers, or the employees, or the middle class, but it represents the interests of the ruling class, of the noble caste. Power was put into the hands of the National Socialists in order that they should maintain the existing economic system and protect it against the menacing forces of social revolution. To protect these interests, National Socialism has taken its highest officials from the ranks of the former officers' corps of the nobility and the high state officials. This Captain Goering, brutal in the extreme, lying and cowardly in the extreme, shows the true face of National Socialism. This Captain Goering was the organizer of the Reichstag fire. His party comrade Goebbels invented the plan. Goering carried it through. All the opportunities for doing so were in his hands. All the necessary power was in his hands. He held all the threads. It was the morphia fiend Goering who set fire to the Reichstag. End of chapter 4.